This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Greg Haynes, CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Board. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan to zero out global sugar subsidies at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with the Beef Board's Greg Haynes, next. America's sugar growers are among the most efficient and sustainable in the world. But billions of dollars in foreign sugar subsidies have distorted the global market for surplus sugar, driving prices to levels barely one-half of global cost of production. Eliminating America's no-cost sugar policy without first reforming the global sugar market would jeopardize family farms, good-paying jobs, and our domestic supply of sugar. A new bill called Zero for Zero takes action to zero out all foreign sugar subsidies and level the playing field. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. As the nation's cattlemen gather in Nashville this week, CEO Greg Haynes says the beef checkoff will be celebrating its 35-year anniversary. Haynes says a lot has changed in 30-plus years. So 35 years ago, beef was in the crosshairs of like almost everyone. I mean, you had E. coli outbreaks at uh, Jack in the Box. Beef is not safe. You know, it's got E. coli and all of this. You had a lot of concern about that. Everybody was afraid about fat and cholesterol, and beef was the culprit on this. So you shouldn't eat beef. So you had beef consumption just in a free fall for many, many years. And that's when the industry said, hey, we've got to get together and we've got to do something to stop this and counter all this. And that's why the, the checkoff came into existence and, and was working, you know, to, to fix that. And so over these last 35 years, you can see a huge change. I mean, that it took a few years to stop that decline in beef consumption, but since then it's been going up. We now have the highest demand for beef in, in decades. And so I think it's been doing really good things. Consumers understand the quality of it. They, uh, they understand the nutritional value and all that. So I think beef is in a, in a pretty good place. I think our biggest challenge now with consumers is they're still looking at, you know, the environment and sustainability, global warming, all these things that become top of mind issues for everyone. And unfortunately, the beef industry here, again, is, is getting blamed for much of this global warming when really that's not true. So this, I think, will be a big focus on the, uh, for the checkoff going forward is how do we address and demonstrate the facts about this, that beef is not necessarily the big culprit. Uh, it's other things that we need to, to get that. Because I get frustrated. I see these articles out there and people just kind of say, well, you know, if you eat less beef, it's good for the environment. And they make it sound like a fact, and everybody's starting to accept that. So we need to really be pushing back on those kind of things. But other than that, I mean, I think demand for beef is, is strong. Consumers value it. They understand it. I think, you know, we just have to make sure that these other issues don't creep in and start impacting that demand that we have. Greg, what evidence can you give that beef is safer today than it was 35 years ago and that farmers are more productive and more sustainable? I mean, there's been so many different studies that, that are showing this, just, you know, the research as far as how efficient the production is. I mean, you just look at some of the basic stats and you see 
how much beef we're producing right now with way fewer cattle. So, I mean, right there, that alone shows you that we're much more efficient in what we're doing. And then you look at uh, just the uh, the percentage of beef that's grading prime and choice. So, again, that shows that you know, this huge shift away from select to choice and prime uh, just shows, again, the impact that the producers have had with genetics to make it more efficient and get a higher quality product um, out there, I think, is amazing. So just all this different work, I mean, I think those are really simple, high-level high facts that just show how efficient our industry is. Aside from celebrating the 35th anniversary of the checkoff while in Nashville, what do you hope for during this meeting? Are there particular decisions or announcements that you anticipate? Well, on the checkoff side, so this is really kind of our um, a big step in our whole planning process for the year. So all of the contractors who we work with and implement these beef programs are going to be presenting their ideas to all the producer-led committees. So we have, you know, six committees out there that are made up of producers from the Federation and the, and the CBB. These contractors, which we have about nine of them, are going to be presenting their ideas and getting feedback from these producer groups. So this, I think, is very important, A, for the producers to be seeing, you know, what are these plans and what's going forward, but also, that feedback, I think, is essential so the contractors then take this feedback and they'll update their proposals and their plans and modify it to, to fit to what the, what the industry is looking for and what the, the producer leadership are looking for. And then they'll bring those back in September here to Denver then and uh, present those to the operating committee, which will then make the final decisions on, you know, how are we going to be spending our checkoff dollars in fiscal year 22, which starts in October already. So this is a pretty big meeting for all of these programs uh, to be able to, to kind of get vetted and get that feedback from the producers and take it forward. And then I think it's also a huge opportunity just for everyone to see what the checkoff programs have been doing over the last year. So we have a, uh, we'll have the session on the checkoff highlights, which I think is very important for people to see, to know what their checkoff dollars are, are used for and the program impacts that are out there. I have to believe yeah. that export demand is going to be a bright spot when you talk about that. Yeah, export demand has been great. I mean, having worked with the U.S. Meat Export Federation for a long time, obviously I, I believe the impacts of that you know, are super important for our industry. And if you just look at what's happened over the last three months, so the last three months we've set export records each month uh, for the value of exports that are going out there. And this is in a global market that's still reeling from COVID. So, you know, the U.S. is probably ahead of, of most countries out there. Uh, and our biggest markets, the Asian markets like Japan, you know, we're seeing that with the Olympics just, the impact they're having as far as not having uh, spectators at the events and things like that, Korea, Taiwan, you know, China, they're still having impacts of, of COVID, and so they're not fully opened as far as food service, things like that, and we're still hitting records. So I think once you start to see all of these economies bouncing back and getting back to normal, the potential out there is just going to be enormous. And for me, the export side is so exciting is because it's taking cuts that we don't really consume here and selling those for a premium. So that adds value to everyone. 
you know, I always hear people will be asking us, like, well, why are we exporting our beef or, you know, why are we importing beef when we're exporting it? Why don't we just eat our own beef? And I'm like, well, that would be great, but what we're exporting are these cuts that we don't eat, and we like to eat hamburgers and steak, and so we're importing some low-end trim to mix with our fat to make hamburgers, and then we're eating our steaks, but these cuts, you know, especially variety meats like tongue or tripe and, you know, short plate and chucks and things like that that we don't have a high demand for, they're all going overseas where they are a high demand item, so... Exports are definitely a bright spot here for our industry. Greg, do you have research that indicates any significant consumer trends that the checkoff is already or may need to rise to respond to? Yeah, I mean, I think just the trends, there's constant tracking surveys that are done with consumers. So trying to, you know, compare that with beef and other proteins and, and issues that are there. COVID, you know, had a huge impact on how all the consumers were shopping and, you know, what they were doing and the cuts they were looking at, and and that was huge. So over the last year, I mean, this the checkoff has really done a good job of responding to these changes of shopping for groceries online or, or you know, ordering and picking them up and not going out to food service and things like that. So the the research has really helped us be able to adjust those programs and take advantage of these shifts in consumer behavior that, you know, we were seeing firsthand, but also some of the subtleties that are picked up in that kind of research. And that's showing, too, you know, how helping us forecast how are things going to end up. You know, we're, we're coming out of COVID, but we have different issues. Are things going to change permanently? Is, are things going to go back the way they used to be? Is it going to be some kind of a hybrid of that? And I think that's where the research has been really helpful in kind of showing us that things aren't all going to go back, you know, the way that they used to be. Things are going to be different, and we need to continue to focus in those areas as far as, uh, you know, online shopping, uh, looking at different cuts, the convenience factor that consumers are looking for, especially if they're not going to be going out as much. So that's really been helpful in, in adjusting and, and allowing us to kind of pivot in a very short time to be able to, to build that demand. And like I said, that's continued, and we're seeing that that huge demand. And demand, you know, demand isn't built just in a day or a week. You know, it's like Rome; it takes a long time to build it. And so, when COVID hit, I was like thrilled to see that at the supermarkets, you would go in there and beef was completely gone, and you'd have alternative meat still on the shelves and other proteins. But that shows that consumers have that demand for beef. And again, it's. It doesn't happen overnight. This shows, I think, the impact that the checkoff's been able to have over all these years. Well, there was a period of time when the checkoff came to be that television and radio and magazines were the main way to reach consumers, and the consumer was making a choice toward meat with their hands on the shopping cart. Now their hands are on a keyboard and not necessarily even in the store. How does this change the approach at which you reach to consumers and make the case for beef and the diet? Yep. No, you're exactly right. And that's part of this whole shift that's been happening. Um, you know, millennials are one of the biggest targets that we have, you know, young millennial families who are shopping online or, you know, they're super busy working, both parents are working and, you know, trying to provide nutritious dinners and lunches for their children and family. And so a lot of the work that's, that's done now has shifted away. You don't see so much of these big, 
uh, advertisements on TV or anything, but we still have these that are on social media, and a lot of these can be targeted very specifically to those groups. So as these millennials and these target audience are uh, online or they're shopping or they're looking at things, different banner ads pop up or recipes or or as they're doing searches, we can target so that those results show up higher on their on their search list. So all of these different things are done to really target them and keep that beef message in front of them, which has been super effective. And it's a lot more cost effective than just running, you know, ads that, that go over network TV and things like that. So there really has been this whole shift to very targeted social media, online advertising, uh, geared towards specific demographics of these, um, you know, individuals who are really the target that we're looking at. So this has been great as far as building that demand. The bad side to this is that the producers who are paying into the checkoff, a lot of times, you know, since they're not our target audience, we're assuming they're already eating a lot of beef. They're not our target. So even if they're on social media and things like that, they're not necessarily going to see that as much. So that's our challenge is to make sure that the producers know, like, hey, you're not seeing the beef it's what's for dinner ads on TV, and you may not be seeing social media uh, ads targeting you, but this is all happening. And so that's that's our challenge to make sure they understand that as well. How do you define the rise of plant-based proteins in the market, and are they taking away red meat market share? I mean, plant-based proteins are still a pretty small share of, of the protein market out there. They're definitely growing. I mean, I don't think they're going to go away. So I th- this is something that we have to take seriously and work on. My biggest frustration with that is when they're selling their products, they're not necessarily doing it on their own attributes. A lot of it is they're trying to, you know, diss beef. You know, they're trying to say beef is bad. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for your health. You know, this is better. And that's what's so frustrating because these products aren't any healthier for you. You know, they're, they've got a whole laundry list of ingredients in there. They're, uh, Carbon footprints aren't necessarily any better because a lot of these pea proteins and ingredients, uh, you know, the, the raw materials are shipped to China on, you know, by boats over the ocean and then they're processed in China and then they're sent back here. So there is a, a large carbon footprint there as well. And so this is where I think we do need to be pushing back and making sure that the consumers understand this because we are obviously the gold standard because they all want their products to taste like beef. And so we need to counter that. And I think the advantage is we are beef. You know, we are the product that everybody wants to emulate. And so even if you come close, it's still going to be, you know, 20 different ingredients that are trying to taste like beef that are all processed. So we need to leverage that benefit that, you know, we are a natural product. We are one ingredient. We have this story. We have these families who are producing it, and we have, you know, a great environmental and sustainability story to tell as well. So that's where I think we need to couple all this and counter that, because I think these will be around. There's always trends and things pop up, so I'm hoping this is a little bit of a trend, and people are just like, hey, you know, let's try this and check it out. So that's probably bumping it up some, and as people eat it for a while, that novelty will wear off. But you know, you do have a, a large percentage or a certain percentage of the population that, you know, they want to eat vegan or, you know, not eat meat. And so for them, that's an alternative, but it's these others that I think we want to make sure 
are continuing to eat the beef that that we're producing. Greg, there is no doubt uh, that there are legal challenges now to the checkoff. What do you believe are the driving force behind these challenges in the courtroom? Yeah, this is where I say we're a little bit of a dysfunctional family. I mean, this is what's frustrating because we have the members of our beef family trying to uh, challenge this. And, and frankly, you know, that ends up just wasting resources that we could be using to promote the product. But I think it really stems to, to kind of just a couple things, which I believe are still misperceptions of how the checkoff works. So I think there's two things that, that I hear mostly that they seem to be unhappy with. And one, they think that, you know, we're controlled by packers, and this is only helping the packers. And I can tell you that, no, we don't have any packers that are involved in the checkoff at all. And, you know, people then say, well, why don't we have packers paying into the checkoff? And it's like, well, when we set up the checkoff, they didn't have packers in that on purpose because we wanted this to be a producer-led and producer-driven program. If you have packers paying into it, then packers are going to want to say, well, you know, we're paying into this. We want the checkoff dollars spent like this or like this. And so it's a double-edged sword. You know, if you, if you have that, if you have packers paying, they're going to want to decide on how those dollars are used. So, you know, that's the balance. If we want to do something, maybe we can find a way to get packers to help support the beef marketing and research. You know, that would be an alternative. Um, but there was a, a design on purpose to, to not include that. And so this is all just, you know, producer-driven. There are some importers because they pay into it, but, you know, 93 94% of the board is made up of producers, so definitely they they drive where it's going. And then I think the other thing there's concern is that, you know, our largest contractor, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, I think some producers don't understand the division there. So they think NCBA is just a policy a policy organization, which it has a policy uh, focus there, but there's a whole separate part of it that is only focused on checkoff, promotion programs, uh, research, things like that. So they, they think that, well, you know, checkoff dollars are being spent for policy issues. And that's the furthest thing from the truth as well. We follow this and we track everything incredibly closely. We ensure that any contractor, whether it's NCBA or anyone else, that they are not using any funds for policy work. So this is a huge, huge focus of everything that we're doing. So I can guarantee you that, no, they are not putting checkoff dollars into any kind of policy work. So I think if people understand that and they, like, really look at the – the programs that are out there and the impacts that it's having, then I, I would hope that they would say, like, hey, yeah, this is an incredibly important program, and all the contractors who we're working with are doing a good job. Have the okay. legal challenges that have come and the critique that you're receiving from inside the family, have they changed the way that you operate, or are they providing you an opportunity now to highlight and specifically provide answers to questions and education. We've tried to be pretty open always, and, uh, you know, we're trying to be more open. That's one of my philosophies is we want to be as transparent as possible, so we're putting information out there. Right now we've got this petition process for a referendum on the petition to have an up or down vote on that. I think in a way that has kind of curtailed what we've been able to do because, 
I want to put out more information that's showing the impact and the positive things that are happening with the checkoff, but we also don't want it to seem like we're interfering with the whole uh, petition process that we're trying to lead producers not to sign the petition. So over the last year, we've had to be a lot more reserved and, I guess, conservative in things that we would have said as far as educating. So that has had an impact. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it is frustrating because we have to fight these battles and, you know, they're suing USDA, but when they're suing USDA, it's really us. And so USDA has these legal fees and legal costs, and we have to pay those legal fees. So anything that costs that are incurred by USDA, USDA, those all get billed back to us. So it is frustrating that we have to use, you know, funds that we could be doing to have these great events and activities and reaching out to consumers or doing research, going to lawyers. And a lot of these attorneys that that the groups use, you know, RCAP has an attorney that's with public justice, and they don't necessarily have pro-ag, um, I guess, ideas in mind, you know, they, they look at a certain segment and then the rest of agriculture they don't like. And we have a vast, you know, all types of agriculture that we have to do. So we need to really be supporting everyone. So it's frustrating that those kind of funds go to, to support that kind of stuff. And even as the challenges come, I would bet you might be able to make the case that you need more dollars in the checkoff to be more effective. No, exactly. I mean, that's probably the biggest challenge that we have is that the checkoff 35 years ago was a dollar a head. Now, 35 years later, it's a dollar a head. So you've had inflation over that time that's probably eroded almost half of the, you know, purchasing power of that dollar. Plus, as we mentioned earlier, we're producing more beef with fewer cattle. So that means less dollars there. So just as in terms of total dollars plus the loss of inflation. Our thanks to Greg Haynes, CEO of the Cattlemen's Beef Board, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan to zero out global sugar subsidies at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.